Welcome to a Musician's Life podcast. This podcast features interviews with a diverse group of musicians in different fields of the music industry, and my intent is that the audience will gain something from each guest's story. This episode is the final episode of season one. Season two will return with previews in January 2017 and with full episodes starting in February. I'd like to thank everyone for their support and positive feedback. Today's guest is Will Daly. Will is a Boston-based recording artist, performer, producer, and six-time Boston Music Award winner. He has released albums for Universal and CBS Records and independently released his latest recordings, National Throat and Wings Born on the Way Down. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe in the podcast app and leave a review. Also, please consider making a donation to this podcast on our homepage at www.andrewhalljones.com. You'll see a link for A Musician's Life. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please email me at amusiciansLifePodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at MusicianLifePod. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. I sat down with Will last summer at a park in Boston. Will Daly, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for doing it. My pleasure. So let's start with some basic biographical info. Where'd you grow up? I'm, grew, I'm a mass hole. I grew up in Massachusetts. I was born in Malden, not far from here. Yeah. Um, uh, Arlington, Andover. My father always lived in Melrose, Mass. Um, mm-hmm. You know, between two parents, moved around a lot. Yeah. And so I'm just got a nice, uh, you know, uh, Eastern Mass culture. Yeah, man. My blood. Uh, so were your parents musical at all? Um, they thought they were. Yeah. My mother uh, sings, mm-hmm. even when, she, you know, she doesn't know the songs. Um and my father uh, always loved, you know, rock and roll. Mm-hmm. This is my, so they, they always really played it and loved it and uh, right. celebrated it. So, so that was important. We and were talking about some records before. Like, what were some records that were played in your house when you were a kid that you remember? Uh, when with my mother, it was a lot of uh, show tunes, Placido Domingo, mm-hmm. uh, and just anything. Um, you know, if it was popular she might have had it or, or yeah. spun it or what whatnot you know yeah. but that, at that point i was getting into those things too and then my father um when i was with him it was the police u2 led zeppelin mm-hmm. um i think he liked ario speedwagon stuff like that and we went yeah. that way but then my mother met my stepfather when i was about eight and he had a was in a band in it throughout his 20s okay. and wasn't like an ex-hippie in a way and um and he had Neil Young and James Taylor, and he, he had an acoustic guitar, and nice. could play flute, and had played upright bass in a band. And mm-hmm. um, and that guitar, I just really gravitated towards his guitar at all times. It was a it was a Martin, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, and he had a ton of records, and listened to a ton of music, and you know, kept on hauling notes and all that stuff. And then I started getting to you know all, all that stuff but also i listened to crap that the kids listen to you know sure. i thought like uh my first concert was bon jovi you yeah know? but i loved aerosmith too cause right was, um i was from boston and especially hometown yeah, yeah and i knew i was boston and i had enough cousins where 
you know, early Aerosmith was very important. Mm-hmm. And the comeback Aerosmith of like, dude looks like a lady and all that yeah. stuff was, I was a child. Right. So, you know, when you're a kid, all that androgynous stuff that was happening in the eighties, that's really came post Bowie and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all those men got comfortable doing it, realized they could make money in. Right. Cause Bowie did it. Uh, you know, I was like, dude looks like a lady. I'm like, you know, these songs were interesting to, to, you know, an eight year old or whatever I was right. at the time. Right. And, and uh, and a lot of those songs are really really cool because I started working with all these crazy songwriters that were you know back then a songwriter that wrote a hit song would back then I mean it doesn't even right. feel that long ago now it, it's we've since stopped having like songwriting that had like modulation in it mm-hmm. or a, a lot of yeah. tempo change the and it happens tricks, sometimes yeah. in cool R and B but right um, you know Desmond Child wrote with all that stuff and he wrote a lot mm-hmm. of his hits for Bon Jovi so your ears will always be there might there would be the staple hook throughout right you know living on a prayer and all right. that stuff but there would be these just ear awakenings of like uh you know it's just i'm always i just dig music in that way like i i don't know what not to like you know that whole thing right. that social media right does to people like say a band you hate <laughs> say music you hate <laughs> i'm like i'm pretty sure if i listen it's to music it's gonna i'm gonna find something, something to like yeah. yeah it won't won't be something that represents me Right. As a soulful individual, it, but uh, right. I just have I have trouble with that that, uh, that, that social poison, you know. Yeah, I, I it's interesting. I feel like some people will say like, oh, well, like, you know, I, I never got into like Miles in the 80s, like mm-hmm. the electronic stuff or when he was like rapped yeah. or whatever, all this stuff. And I always think about it, like Miles Davis was a genius, man. Just like, right. you know, take the time, open up your mind. It's there, man. Just, yeah. you know. And it might have to do with our education system, not talking about the path of artistry and music and not teaching art enough and process. Right. And that if you don't go through an 80s period <laughs> or, or whatever it is, <laughs> right. you don't go through a period that makes uh, people comfortable, how do you how do you find growth and how do you come back to the period where you are comfortable with them or whatnot? And right. And uh, and we also don't talk about like what imprinting is with music. I mean, we're imprinted by the moment with music and the surrounding and all these right. things. And it it's it's not just that. It was cool. I mean, we were talking about Pearl Jam before. And I'm like, all right, I was 14 when I heard that band. Right. And that means something, you know. Right. Um, if I hear a new band right now in the car when I'm stressed out going to the bank to pay a bill, it's not going to imprint on me. It doesn't have right. a chance, you know. Right. Whereas if uh, you and I have a couple of drinks after this and this music comes on and we both, what the hell is this? Right. And then we'll go buy, you know, we're going to buy that record or download, whatever it is. Right. And we're imprinted. Yeah, sure. Because it's the right time. There's all these things that happen and, and we get, we lose, we lose sight and we, and we, I don't know. I'm going off on a tangent. So, so, so let me ask you this, man. So that, so we started talking about your stepfather and his, his he had a bass and he played in bands and his guitar was was that guitar your first instrument would you say no i mean there was a piano yeah or uh, there was violin but yeah. i i uh my first violin recital i turned it upside down and just put the bow against the back because i didn't know i'm like i don't have this okay. i don't have this one you right. know just like this like if i get up someone pulls me up on stage yeah i don't know like can you play i'm like sure and then i start playing like well, this song has fifty thousand changes in it i just turn down the volume and just, no, just yeah. move around a little bit <laughs> <laughs> so uh so piano and guitar so like what were you up to in your like your middle school early high school years like what instrument were you uh yeah that? i mean the guitar was it was my stepfather i was like i want a guitar and i think everyone else in my family was like you've tried piano violin trumpet 
you know, other things. Yeah. Uh, he found a guitar up in like Lowell mm-hmm. that was 75 bucks for the guitar and amp, like a Sears guitar. It's just uh, the gateway to expressing myself through music, you know, mm-hmm. and that it's still to me the number one instrument for me for writing and um, self-expression and mm-hmm. and really um, you know it's just a romantic instrument it's mm-hmm. very uh, it's so versatile mm-hmm. uh, something you keep in right on your stomach right in your core or even lower or, right. or some people higher yeah which is probably better for your back um, do you, you still know, have like that guitar? Uh, it's, I think it's in my parents' basement. Nice. I had that that thing, like with all my bikes and, right. and everything. I would cut them up and like try to make like a Frankenstein thing. So I think I tried a Frankenstein at one point, which mm-hmm. I don't do to my guitars now, but yeah. I let somebody else do it. Um, and uh, it's in the basement somewhere. And um, so yeah, guitars still the way going for still years. Thing. Yeah. So uh, so when did you first start pu- putting a band together? Um, Middle school, high school, freshman year. Yeah, I met. Uh, you know, I couldn't hit a baseball to save my life. I mm-hmm. wanted to play baseball badly. I just couldn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that skill. I had. I think I had so much like little league stress from failing. Yeah. Um. And it wasn't about. You know, it was like I play. I got a band to play girls. I had no idea that would yield girls because, uh, in more end of her high, mm-hmm. uh, sports yielded girls. Right. And I was horrible at them. You know. Yeah. And um. At least team ones, and and like learning the rules of football or something like that right. didn't come till later. And um, so I just had music, and I met this guy who he had long hair freshman year. I was like, I'm gonna talk to that guy. He's long hair, you know. Solid move. And he got me in a band. Yeah. Uh, and just left a mark on me as a person. You know, he's like, I. He just knew what to do to get me um. Get me going. Yeah. You know? Um, and for a lot of people too, and he and he represented music and rock and roll and all this stuff in high school and uh, yeah. So uh, so let's. Talk, who was that guy? Uh, he checked out early. Yeah. From from life. Okay. Um, but uh, all of us that were all professional musicians, the guys that we were close to them. Right. The, okay. the three other guys that were close to them were all pro. All right. In some facet. So, uh, did you guys get on stage like in high school? Like, what, what were you, where were you playing? Like, what were you doing? Um, talent shows, yeah. organizing like barbecues after school in the back. Yeah. Um, and just doing covers. And I went from just playing rhythm guitar, and there was always this guy, my buddy named Ed Jurdy, who's in a band called Band of Heathens. They're out of Texas, and mm-hmm. they're they're actually great, kind of along the Americana, you know, aspect of music jam, mm-hmm. and. Um, they tore all over, mm-hmm. and uh, he and I were in a bunch of bands. And he was an excellent singer and guitarist. So right, he was just like, kids just on fire on right. day one. When I met him, like, holy shit, this yeah. guy! I'm gonna play rhythm guitar for him. I'm gonna sing back up, and then he like would let me sing a tune or two. And yeah. I'm like, oh, wait, I feel great singing. Mm-hmm. But you know, at that time, like, I, you know, singing to me was was my friend Ed or. Right. Uh, Robert Plant mm-hmm. and Bono and like there's nothing that sounded like my voice to me right. at that point like in my voice I hadn't figured out and you're growing and your voice is changing and right. whatever and uh, I think it was more it was something like you know you hear Eddie Vedder and you're like that just sounds different that was like nothing sounded like that at the time mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of those bands all just everyone had their own approach right you know 
So it took the next couple of years just figuring that out. That it out, took a yeah. while. I mean, it took me until I put on my first record. I feel like, oh yeah, that's that's my voice. Right, right. So, uh, so sticking in this high school time frame, mm-hmm. were you? Uh, did you have somebody you felt like was a great teacher or a mentor? Or maybe that guy with the long hair, like. Yeah, there was people time. like that. There's there was him and the guys that we played with. Yeah. They were all uh, another guy named Bob Lord who runs uh, Palmer Records up in New Hampshire. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I just did a record with them. A jazz. We did this jazz Cuban record. But I was just a guest vocalist. Hmm. Cool. Um, totally out of my wheelhouse, but in a beautiful yeah. way. Yeah. Um, I mean, he was an inspiration for me because he could just read a book in a day, play like John and Twistle at fifteen, you mm-hmm. know, and. Um, and we just all love playing together or putting our bands out in the garage or somewhere at a party or whatever it was. And um, we're all, we all share the same seriousness mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. You know, yeah. everyone has music. Everyone should uh, play an instrument. Everyone should record a song. Everyone should play in front of people. You become mm. a better human being by doing it, you know. Mm. And then there's just that, that split that like almost like a mental illness. Mm. Yeah, I'm gonna do this no matter what. Right, right. And it's yeah. and it really is. Uh, I feel like I. N- I see those people all the time, and it's like a. A kinship, almost immediately, and there's a comfort level, and you can just talk and hang out. Right. And then. Um, and then you know the people who are like doing it, like I'm trying to get a career. This is gonna, how I'm gonna do my career. Right. And if if that's that might be. Uh, uh, like a misdirect, misdirection right. sure. in a way. <laughs> sure, man. Like the career comes from just having to do it. Right. In a way. Right. We'll so let the plane go by. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> Helicopter. That's good. It adds to the vibe. So, uh, so last question about high school. So, yeah. what was one of the first concerts that like really blew you away? Was it middle school, high school? You like saw a concert, you're just like, like knocked you. There's out. a bunch. Yeah. Like now that my my brain is a little bit more. There's, it was Peter Gabriel, yeah. Secret World Live, Secret World Tour. Mm-hmm. It was, that was the only tour I've seen where spectacle and music and performance were all just um, at, at their peak, none distracting from the other, all all one, all nothing. Uh, you know, he had there's so much so much stagecraft and everything, and usually I don't care for that. Like right. I like seeing the human struggle with with music mm-hmm. you know i mm-hmm. like to see like somebody playing guitar and there's 180 pounds of pressure in there it could right. go wrong and a string could break i love right. that right you know um but that it is something about him it was so perfect there was uh there was Lollapalooza because i you know i snuck out of the house and at what's now i think named after a bank but it used to be called great woods yep um just climbed up the hill at the back of the whole amphitheater and climbed over the fence once it was dark and mm-hmm. no not, not even once dark we just like a bunch of people just go, you know, if a hundred people go over at once. Right, they're not going to So get everyone lines up and you go. Right. And uh, we did other ones in the dark. I mean, I did it for anything. I did it for James Taylor. I did right. It, you know, we just would hop the fence. Right. And uh, and I got over the fence and I think like Ice Cube was playing and then Pearl Jam played and they were like doing somersaults on stage and they better climb a rope ladder and, and it was just pure pure energy yeah. and then uh jane's addiction um and just that whole the whole group of bands that that played that thing and they were they're all on the rise and, ex- mm-hmm. and just had that 
on the rise energy, yeah, energy and, yeah. uh, and the bonfires were the fence was eventually torn down and bonfires were lit so that, that was a whole mm. a whole thing right. there was, there's been many and it's tough to, to remember everything actually. yeah yeah <laughs> sure man so let's move on to uh, let's talk about college a little bit so yeah did you go to college for music or what did you what did you do for college no i i knew um i knew as soon as i got that guitar that i'd be doing this for the rest of my life yeah and my one of my first teachers when uh my parents were like well if you're gonna get this guitar you gotta do lessons so i had this guy who was former berkeley teacher mm-hmm. and i wanted to learn you know nirvana acd whatever right and i was getting the circle of fifths and um these early year uh, first year Berkeley books and yeah. stuff like that and reading and all great stuff now right that I had that like drilled in when I was a kid but I'd show up for the lessons uh, learning something else and he'd be like no we're, we're doing this piece you gotta play this piece and I um, just resented him because I was right. you know yeah I was 13 and uh, and uh, I didn't practice in the right way and he didn't seem all that happy yeah. So then I thought, well, I'm not going to music school. Right. But this is what happens. Right. I, lo- I, I I'm going to do music anyways, and I did have I've, you know, the other day I I, won't, I mean not the other day. I don't know. I grabbed a lesson from Lyle Brewer last year. You know, right. I still like dig, and I'm right. I've been studying gypsy jazz, and not think I'm going to be a gypsy jazz player by any means. Right. But it's going to open up my my writing, and it's pretty sure. much I wanted to live life that just opened up my experience as a human being because writing and recording my songs gives me the greatest pleasure more so than any other aspect of of doing it and even even live because live is you know i got my own level of social anxiety Mm -hmm. and there's the ups and downs of touring and and it's exhausting especially at my level where i I don't have a guitar tech every night and i don't have these things and i'm packing up my own gear every night and and doing the handshakes and selling my stuff you Mm -hmm. never know so It can be just a daunting experience, right. and um, I just want a life that leads to uh, to feeding more more songs. Mm. And so, I went to college to find a band of, of like-minded musicians, and I majored in English because mm-hmm. I knew you know, in, in, in poetry and all these things, and just I knew that would just feed it, right. e- even accidentally, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'm still just looking for experiences in life or learning other things and trying other things to feed it all it'll everything will always go back and feed my music one way or another, you know. Right, right. So so in college, so you put a new band together or was it were you yeah. in a band or I met some guys. Yeah. Uh, where were you in college? UMass by the way? Amherst. UMass Amherst, okay. Uh, met some guys right away, started a band like the second day of school mm-hmm. and played with them. They were all high school mates and played with them until I put out my first solo record. And it really was, I felt like I went to high school with those guys too. Yeah. Because we all became so close and I became close to their hometown in Long Island. Um, yeah. We were brothers, and but it definitely was a loyalty band, mm-hmm. you know? And I was writing songs that I wanted to write, but also that I thought would pull up, you know, make them happy or pull out the best for them. Right. Or what is the perfect combination of the four of us? Like a democratized mm-hmm. kind of writing style, which... Uh, was cool and fun and, and again it made me do things I could not have if I didn't the beautiful thing about that is like I would not have made this song if I didn't know that person right yeah and that's like the, the same thing that I'm still after and like right 
um, just wherever your life takes you, like what's going to happen with what you create. It's amazing. Yeah. So, um, but at the end of the day, I was, there wasn't an overall encompassing musical, um, vision. It was like any band It's a combination of the four of us and it Mm -hmm. it fizzled out and you know, one guy got in a lot of trouble. One guy, uh, went and played another band and and did pretty well for himself for a little Mm -hmm. while. And, uh, and at, uh, towards the end of it, around 23, 22, or I don't know where I was, I was uh, making, I started like secretly going to the studio in Boston here that had all 16 track analog, uh, analog gear. I'm mm-hmm. like, if I'm going to be another dude with a guitar, because I never wanted to be Will Daly out there. You right. know, I always wanted to be in a band, but band, yeah. the world didn't need another male yeah. first, last name. Right. And, uh. I was like, well, I am going to do that. It's going to be 16-track analog, no automation on the mix, mm-hmm. no computers whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that's how. And I finished that record, and there's that song we So which do. record was that? Goodbye, Red Bullet. Goodbye, Red Bullet. So that was yeah. uh, 2004? Yeah. I mean, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so let's talk about leading up to making that record. So you were... When did you were you living in Boston or did you wrap living up in Boston? And that band was do, yeah, the band was doing well. I mean, we were like from the get go. We all uh, transferred to like one guy transferred to Berkeley. I transferred to UMass Boston. I finished okay. up here. So you all came to Boston. All came to Boston. Okay. Um, I think within like six months we were headline in the Paradise. Right. We were like just I don't know what our music was. It was jam, hard rock. It, you know, I, I don't even know what it was anymore. Right. You know. So so let's talk about let's stop you for a second. So you all moved out from Amherst into Boston, yeah. right? So you all got different apartments. No, we got you? one apartment in a basement on Westland Ave, awesome. uh, and that I think uh, it was fully rat and roach infested without I'm exaggeration. Sure, I'm sure, it still is. Yeah, and uh, it was in a basement with bars on the windows. Yeah, um, the trash everyone's trash collected outside our door. Yeah, I think it was like two fifty to three fifty a month each. Right, about for each of us. And um, we doubled up in the room, so they had one room to practice in, which drove the rest of the building bananas. Oh, I bet, man. But on our, you know, we moved there after sophomore year of college, and so in June, we just started shedding all these tunes, right, uh, in the basement, and then had it had it down, and had a bunch of really cool tunes, and then uh, went from like. I think our first gig was a place called 835 or 335 Club, right there. It's where, um, that's right near Fenway. Okay. But we just started, They we were all still under, tw- you know, we weren't, we were 19 and 20. Right. And uh, they let us play, and I, we had to, like, sneak friends in and everything like mm-hmm. that. But we filled the room over and over and just went from there to, like, Bill's Bar. And then I remember mm-hmm. this one show where it was, and here's the thing: we still were at shows back then. We collected addresses, not emails. Mm-hmm. We collected emails, but we collected right. addresses right. too. That was the main thing you wanted because right. every month you'd make a postcard of your shows and just mail it mail out. Mail it out, yeah. You'd go to the print shop, have it mailed out. Uh, a friend of artists would create posters, and you'd spend your Friday night or your, mo- your Monday and Tuesday night that week walking around Boston and hanging them up. Mm-hmm. You would get an, uh, an email or a call from the promoter saying, uh, we're getting fined because you put them on a phone booth or whatever, you know? Right, right. No phone, okay, no phone booths next time, whatever. Right, um, right. You And then uh, 
one time there's a show we got asked to do this show by a guy named Shred who used to run BCN saying uh, we're doing a show four bands you're selected at the Paradise or some sort of event but something that you wouldn't do now in a million years I wouldn't do but mm-hmm. you had to sell the tickets ahead of time to decide what s- slot you got in the night right so we just went bananas right sold like 300 tickets nice and there was like better well-known Boston bands at the time right but we sold the most ended up headlining the paradise that night mm-hmm. you know six yeah. months into being in Boston we we're just like rock and roll man off and running and yeah. uh, doing residencies at Bill's Bar which mm-hmm. was a cool place to play back then and yeah uh, you know, we would tour around. We'd start playing New York a lot. We made some records and worked on some things, but didn't know what the hell we were doing business-wise right. or even music direction-wise. Right. Or, um, it was had youthful arrogance about it too. So this was all leading up to the Goodbye Red Bullet record. Yeah, I mean, this is that's about five years. We played together about five years. I mean, this was before like eighteen you, before you made that. Record. Oh yeah, yeah, this is yeah. like eighteen to twenty-three, twenty-four. Right. So, um. So, so yeah, you're basically, like, building in Boston, doing some regional Yeah, and then you're stuff. following, like, I don't want to play with these guys anymore. You're growing up, you're, like, you know what you want to do now. You, you got your feet wet. and So, did you self-finance that record? The Good Bear I Bullet, yeah. I mean, it was just, like, money in my pocket, mm-hmm. whatever I had. I also, also, at the same time, I was playing down in uh, Faneuil Hall, doing, like, um, cover sets, acoustic. Okay. So, I put my guitar down a half-step and... You know, learn 200 covers. Right. Mix in all my songs every fourth song. Right. Um, and, and how often were you doing that? Like how many nights a week? Uh, were you doing some that? weeks could be like four nights a week. Yeah. Because you get, I think you do a three-hour set. Maybe you get a buck fifty yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So if, so you could do like down there in the hall. You could do kind of do five o'clock. Let the next guy come in at you know seven. And I'll come right. back at ten. Right. And uh, three hundred bucks, and then some people tip you, and right. you've got you walk with four or five hundred dollars from playing music. You just feel great. Never yeah. mind. It helped, like, just songwriting and stuff. And at right. the time, I was writing like I thought I was like I thought I was Frank Zappa, and I was just like writing like <laughs> songs with twelve parts, and right. and almost like a middle finger too to the process because you know thing what was dominating the airwaves that time was so frustrating and, and boring to me in a way. Right. Uh, and you had this, like, you know, this the, the post-grunge music was just, just unbearable. Yeah. Um, so, well, I don't know, what's it, like Limp so, Bizkit yeah. and, and th- things that had and acronyms. And um, so I was just, yeah, I usually, sometimes with music and creation, I just try to, I hear something, even if I like it, I'm like, all right, that's great. Well, that's happening. Right. So I'm going to go the other way. It's right. like. You know, why would someone start a cola company right now? Right, right. You know, it doesn't make sense. So right. Pepsi and Coke have it all. Um, but then doing those covers, I'd be mm-hmm. like, oh, wait a second. And then I was like playing Neil Finn tunes and Crowded House tunes and realized, God, this is just gorgeous. And getting into like back into like what I started on the first place is like verse, pre-chorus, chorus, bridge. Right, right. Uh, and certainly not that I stick to that by any means. Right, but right. But just the confidence and like, all right, chill out, kid. You right. know. Um, and then, good. So I had money in my pocket from things, and mm-hmm. I would go to this studio. It's called uh, Studio Two Four Seven. And um, if I had three hundred bucks, I'd do two days or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me, it took me about a year to do the record okay. that way. Yeah. Also because I'd never produced my own record. Right. I didn't know what the hell. I was like, 
I don't think I'm lasting in this band very long. They wouldn't do these tunes. Any, these aren't the tunes that this band would do. And um, I got different musicians. Got right. a guy named Joe McMahon. Yeah. Um, who's an amazing bass Great player, bass player yeah. and just other people uh, in town that I wanted. And I did a lot of the instruments, most of the instruments myself. Um, and uh, I was doing the way out. I mean, you know, there's no computers. It Who had played drums on that record? Uh, uh, there's this guy, Rich, Ad- Rich Adkins, okay. who's played, mm-hmm. who doesn't play around town anymore, but okay. he's, he's in town. And then mm-hmm. uh, my friend, the guy who was in my band at that time, played like two songs, Anthony Burlich. Okay. Um, and yeah, I was out of money at the end and right. cut a deal with a studio owner. I'm like, how about I give you my car? He needed yeah. a car. Right. So I give him my car, which is a red Honda Civic, the mm-hmm. red bullet. And um, he gave me the mixes. Mm-hmm. And we were just like, we both made out, you All know? Right, there you go. Um, and uh, we put like, you know, the schematics for the cars and the artwork. And um, and I didn't know at the time how important that would turn out to be. Mm-hmm. You know, it really was, oh, I just yeah. need to get the record done. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. And and then I'll, till this day, you know, I'll go into a radio interview or something. And be like, so you sold your car? <laughs> to pay for your first record and yeah. that is literally what happened story, yeah but you realize how important a true narrative helps art mm. and no one nobody teaches that or talks about that right uh you got to write a good song it, uh, the song is the only thing that matters a good song will will do it. no not necessarily you know uh a bad song can make it through mm. <laughs> you right. know, but it will be good to someone, sure. sure yeah. But you know what I mean. And also, uh, a good narrative can open the door, though, um, for all kinds of things to say, wait, what? Hmm. And then your ears are awake. You have that moment for imprinting. You have that moment to not put, put down your stresses or to, to, to put away all your distractions and maybe let the music in. Hmm. and take it for what it is because you had a moment of connection by the narrative hmm. um, and it's not it's an, it's an unfair word because it's just it has to be a truth and we'll see all the time where it's not a truth you know there's right. a narrative to uh, you know I'm, I'm pretty sure Jay-Z's and Beyonce's relationship is not working out exactly the way her record says Sounds it is like, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean yeah but you know whatever level of truth that is it's it's they that marketers know they, they sell that, that this this yeah. works and and there's or oh, you know Justin Bieber crashing a car is now part of his narrative if he releases new music because he crashes car but you know what he's doing alright because this song's cool and different now it's Skrillex so, you know just right. it changes everything and you see it used in all kinds of ways but when it's used in a truthful soulful human way it's a connection to your music because that right. is what we all have is this this uh, thing of music and I, I'm not saying like uh I uh, I resent the idea of saying like music's so important to me, right? Because music's so important to everybody, right? And if it's not important to them, we need to help them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and if they can find importance in in pop country, then that's great. Because there's a beat going on, and there's something, and there's melody somewhere, mm-hmm. and it, and it just keeps that heart beating and connected to the rest of us from, through something else. And eventually, that melody through. Osmosis and everything leads back to Miles Davis somewhere, right, you know, somewhere maybe there, we can yeah. reach them. So 
it's it's connection you know that's why we see uh it interrupted so often by uh you know why would you attack a, a, a nightclub where there's rock and roll playing it's because pe- there's a universal connection happening in that room it doesn't matter what religion you are right. what sex you are anything so you put out Goodbye Red Bullet. Uh, did you you self publish that? You uh, self printed it. Makers or yeah. whatever you did. Uh, it was CD Baby. Yeah. And maybe a, a company in Massachusetts called Nimbit. I don't know if they're still called Nimbit or something. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, iTunes and CDs and uh, back in my car, plane rides, train rides, mm. friends rides. Yeah. Uh, West Coast, East Coast. Um, so did you put hit it in all packages. That solo? Did all you? that solo. Yeah. I mean, I did some releases in New York, in Boston. With full That's band. when I started playing with Dave Brophy and Joe McMahon. Okay. Because uh, the drummer that I had, uh, I wanted to play with Joe, and Joe was like, I want a drummer that I want to play with. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, all right. <laughs> uh, and um, so he knew Dave Brophy, and so we brought him in on Goodbye Bullet. But at that time, I was still, I went through a period where, because I like writing whatever song I want. I like, there's a folkiness, like a, to to goodbye bullet and i still liked write, writing rock and roll mm-hmm. and pop tunes and what i like writing whatever the fuck i want yeah and uh trying to figure out how to make that work and I, then i started having this kind of scattershot show of just all these tunes that i was writing because i was finally free of my band mm. and i was just like vomiting songs yeah at the mountain they were all over the place yeah um and ended up out in LA, yeah, playing solo. Mm-hmm. I packaged a bunch of CDs out to radio and mm-hmm. started getting some good spins here and there. Um, but this guy at XM Radio opened the package, mm-hmm. listened to the record, mm-hmm. and started spinning it like crazy on XM Unsigned, which was a station in 2004-05 time period where people paid attention to so then all of a sudden I'm getting called from all the labels Mm -hmm. like crazy and a couple of connections I had just from playing in my band for so long Mm -hmm. we're digging the record and I'm out in LA and I'm at the top of Capitol Records and I'm here there and everywhere and just um, you know the industry starting to kind of collapse on itself like that Christopher Nolan Inception movie where the city starting to fold over you know Mm -hmm. it's just like inverting and people are getting fired and right it's just I, I got to the party when the booze was gone. Right. And <laughs> so I'm sitting with the president of Capitol up in the circular, you know, yeah, the building, building. Looking, yeah. I'm like, this is, how'd I get to this building? And I, right. and I literally did this album myself and did it almost as like a cathartic experience. And now everything's working out. Hmm. And the one thing I'll say about music that they don't teach and you can't, you can't teach me. It's like when you're putting your art out there, things happen things doors open if doors aren't opening then reassess right and I don't mean like quit I just mean like reassess you know yeah um one thing that's always happened to me since putting out Kubera Bullet is the phone rings and in just the craziest craziest ways Mm. and you know as you know like the kid who hopped the fence to see Lollapalooza right. played with Eddie Vedder last month, you know? Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't, uh, you know, I don't know, try to right. <laughs> answer Craigslist. I had to play with Eddie Vedder. Like, just yeah. things happen, yeah, you yeah. know? Things happen. You have to, a couple things, be ready to walk through the door when it opens, mm-hmm. pick up the phone when it rings, mm-hmm. 
know how to walk through the door and, and handle yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, know how to handle yourself when you walk through the door and it doesn't work out. And then you walk in the room, you're like, ah, I've made a huge mistake, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and know, know what know how to react when it's not the door you want it to open opens Mm -hmm. and how to make a choice you know right um and 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 accept what what is coming your way right you know so you're at the top floor of Capitol records so you're up there and what does he say do they love your record what are they what are what's going Uh, on his number two guy yeah um Loved it. He was the big thing. He's like, wanted to do it. That guy, uh, the the head guy, said, let's keep talking. Um, keep doing what you're doing. I think they lost their job soon after that, which is pretty much the story of my next four years. Mm-hmm. Since Goodbye Bullet to like 2000 and, well, since t- to 2013. That was yeah. the story of everything for me. Yeah. Um, and just getting to the game when... You know, everyone realized it's been on steroids and right. everyone's was being a fool or cheated or the whole thing's built on House of Cards. So you're at the top of the yeah. cap- Capitol Records and like, so. And that was just, I mean, top of Capitol Records, that was just like one of, of the, the of meetings, meetings I had. Yeah. The showcases. Yeah. Like, like crazy. Yeah. So um, let's talk about like the showcase. Like, so let me ask you this. So we'll start here. So, um. So what led up to you signing with, was it CBS? Yeah, so CBS came, uh, CBS Records might have been the first quote-unquote major label that I signed with. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I'm out in L.A., I'm doing all the meetings, I'm doing all these showcases, everything's falling apart. Like the person you had a good showcase with, that label closes down the next Mm. day or something like that, you know? And um, I met a guy out there who became my manager for a little while, still my good friend, and he... um, he was kind of overseeing a lot. He was more in the Vans uh, warp Tour scene, mm-hmm. and uh, but he really loved my music. And uh, I got sick, and I'm like, I have to go back to Boston, man. I'm I'm really sick. I have no health insurance. And uh, mm-hmm. he goes, All right, you go, you go, and then we'll fi- we'll figure this out. I'm like, I, by then I really was like, I had played music since like gigs all over since I was 18, you know, yeah. and, and doing all kinds of stuff. And Goodbye right. Bull went really well, and I thought this went really well. And I don't know what to do next. Right. Which now I'm just used to on a daily basis. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I don't know what to do next. And I, so I go home. I land. I get healthy. He calls me and says, I got you a deal. Why don't you come back to L.A.? And the deal was a venture capital deal. And that's a group, small group that says, we're going to give you X amount of dollars. Mm-hmm. Not to you exactly. Right. But it was, it was like $75,000 mm-hmm. for, which, you know, at that point was a ton of money right i didn't get any of it It was more like you to market you to get you signed to this next thing okay to, someone's gonna buy us out when they mm-hmm. sign you and we're gonna make money right and i was really I, I came back to boston and picked up a job working uh on a local politician's campaign mm-hmm. through a friend because i needed work quick because i was sick right. and so but let said, me ask you about that so they put out that seventy five thousand, but that's not something that they're gonna that's on you for them to recoup. It's not like nope. They were, okay. No, but it is in my contract that as soon as a deal signed, they get X. Right. Sure. You know. Okay. Gotcha. So and they say, All right, go make a record. Come back here, make a record. I'm like, nope. I'm I'm burnt. Mm-hmm. You know, fuck that scene. 
sure. And uh, I did the whole dance out there. Mm-hmm. And again, I was in LA from playing and then hanging out and trying to keep things moving. But I like didn't, I was just doing my thing. And, mm-hmm. and I never like, I'm going to wear this. I'm going to sound like that. I never had any of that put together. I right. still don't. Yeah. And um, I said, I'm going to stay here and make it with my mates here in Boston. Mm-hmm. I knew a guy named Tom Polche, who's an amazing producer, an amazing musician, and kind of like my mentor who, I, it's like the budget they gave us for the record, I think, you know, 11 songs in, in nine days was like 10 grand, mm-hmm. which in 2006 was nothing. Yeah. And... Um, Especially for a singer songwriter, like you have to pay the drummer. Yeah. Like in a band, no one's getting paid at yeah. that moment. Yeah. Right. So, um, we did that. We did that out because of the budget. We did it in nine mm-hmm. days. And this is and the back flipping forward. Back flipping forward. Okay. Yeah. And um, right when Tom was about to press record, like literally, like day one, my buddy is starting up CBS Records again because CBS Records never sold the name so they have it and they're thinking of just starting it up again and mm-hmm. doing a new model mm-hmm. and at that point I was like man I've heard everything can we just make an awesome record right and uh, finished the record and again like I was just I thought these fools in LA were giving me money to make a record great I'll have an awesome record right I'll make my two things that make me happiest writing the songs and recording them done right. yeah and um just that the phone starts ringing things mm-hmm. start happening the mm-hmm. music got out there uh magical things started happening uh rick rubin loved the record We're talking to rick rubin he was super slow cbs records came along that investment group was like mm-hmm. we want the cbs deal because it's gonna it's it's ready now mm-hmm. it's it's gonna pay us uh i tricked and i i hadn't seen a dime yet from any kind of record deal mm-hmm. and i t- i told the uh like I had an acoustic guitar, but I told the investment group, I was like, you guys want me to play shows for Back From Me Forward? I don't have an acoustic guitar. <laughs> I'm like, I need one. They're like, all right, you go pick out acoustic. I went down to Guitar Center. Right. There was these three brand new uh, advanced Jumbo Gibsons on the wall. I tried all three because each one could be a little bit. And I tried right. to pick the one I liked the best. It was like 2500 bucks. I'm like, this is what I want. And I thought... I just robbed a bank. Right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And yeah. like, no one's like, well, that's kind of your money. You're doing all the way. Cause it's hard for me still to think it's just a coup that I get to do this for, for work. And yeah. I, I'm a little bit better at it now, but still, right. Um, I just haven't been, uh, and I have friends who are, who are professional who money, and, and they keep the money and music separate, but they, they start with that, man, and they do it well. They do it right. soulfully, too. Sure. Um, and I try to learn from them. But I got that guitar, and then I got the CBS deal, and I mm-hmm. think because all the money went to the investment group, right? you know, uh, mm-hmm. I think I got like $3,000 or something, mm. which at that point, I got 3000 bucks in my pocket. I was dead yeah. broke. I was still paying off hospital bills from being sick in L.A. And, right. Um, and you had thus all this promise and mm-hmm. uh, accept the guy who started the labels want to sign me, not the president. The guy was going to come in and run the whole thing. Okay. But my buddy Tom, because of the success of the record that we even having just regionally mm-hmm. before they signed it, yeah, uh, he got picked up as an A and R guy. So okay. I had a man on the inside. Okay. And uh, and uh, I'm all of a sudden kind of connected back to L.A. and I'm you know in L.A. once a month playing, mm-hmm. showcasing, touring mm-hmm. West Coast and. And a uh, bunch of cool things happened with that. What I didn't realize at the time 
is how important a team is. Mm. I was still thinking it was the, the idea that like, th- things happen, cool things happen. I'm just putting my heart out there, my best foot forward, and being right. myself an artist. Right. Cool things are going to happen. But you have to know when that door opens how to walk through it. Mm. And you're, you're going to keep that door open and more door opens will open after that if you have a team all firing on the same cylinder. Mm. Now, at the time, the whole industry is still falling apart. And people are just scrambling. It was and still is the Wild West. Mm. You know, by the time this airs, the industry is going to be different. Mm. And so I didn't have an agent. You know, I didn't have a manager who knew how to, he could get deals done like he did, but he didn't know how to manage uh, a rock, Americana, folk, pop, singer, songwriter Mm -hmm. uh, with a label that was part of a TV network. Right. You know, that wasn't his right. thing. And I didn't have the, you know, the pub, the right publicist at the time. That was, no one was firing at the same cylinder. Right. And CBS still thought at that time, they're still, you know, stuck in a little bit of old thinking, as everybody was at that time. Mm-hmm. That, oh, he's, he, I remember I was playing in LA. The producer of CSI saw me. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm putting you in my show. And it was one of those moments like, what are you talking about? Yeah, sure, whatever. Next thing I know, I'm on C- CSI New York with Gary Sinise. Like you were physically in the show? In the show with Gary Not Sinise. Not just the music? No, I was like in playing my song on stage with Gary Sinise playing b- bass in my band. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and then I was doing like the morning shows and, right. and all that stuff and doing a ton of radio and doing right. radio tours. So I'm flying all around the country going to every radio station and playing the singles. Yeah. But um, at that point when those when like the TV show airs, like you got to be on the road at that moment. At that moment, yeah. And your agent's got to be calling, which I didn't have the agent doing, yeah. or any agent doing, right. saying, Will Day's about to be on CSI. It's, it's two, you know, the bill's now $2,000 a night, now 500 right. or whatever. Right. Just, and we should have been on the road for a month and a half around that time, or two months directly, and then come home for a week and then go out back out for a month. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't um, managed correctly, and I, right. and I didn't know how to do that. Plus, the whole thing was just the ship was burning the yeah. ship was coming down around yeah. all around everyone yeah and so that was a learning experience um it's it's all been a learning experience in that that aspect and uh but at the same time right i got to do a bunch of cool stuff yeah again the experience things the songwriter i'm like oh i'll try that csi thing we did a bunch of other things like i wouldn't go do again i think we played like uh on a soap opera which you know became cool once james franco did it but i did it first right. <laughs> and yeah. uh and i was like are you they're like do you want to do this I was like are you kidding like be on a soap opera set and uh, that sounds awesome yeah it sounds just it. like i can't i shouldn't take any psychedelics when i do it just you know because it'll be really <laughs> be really weird, wild yeah. Yeah. and it was just hanging out with amazing people yeah all day. Would I do it again? No. That's not going to spend my time. Right. But I had an experience which fed me as a person, which I got to be with these other people who could who could one be joking with me, uh, the camera's off one second, get a, a page of dialogue, read it, and then spit it out while crying. I was like, this is an amazing thing I'm in. And just had, uh, you know, years of wild, wild stuff. And, right. um, and then... Uh, I got really close to the president of CBS. He mm-hmm. re-signed me. Mm-hmm. We did the Torrent series, which mm-hmm. had like um, a bunch of guests on it, yeah, including Roger McGuinn of the Birds and mm-hmm. uh, T Bone Burnett, executive producing, and mm-hmm. you know, meeting with T Bone and kind of getting this like directive from the president of music to just go, 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 Con- yeah. connect with the people. We need like connections coming away. Yeah, 
connections being taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was torrent, and that was pretty good. You know, again, no agent, uh, <coughs> stuff like that. I don't, I've, I've never, and, I've never had an agent. And I still the, don't. The torrent are the volume one and volume two. Those are both under CBS. Yep. Under that umbrella. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like an EP kind of release that we did a, a physical one CD when it's all over. Right. And uh, so, did you tour on both of those records to support yeah, them? Or? Yeah, we were yeah. touring. Like uh, tours for me always was like we would book them or we'd be offered. Right. We would get them. Um, and uh, so, even though you had a deal, were you like booking those t- dates yourself and putting? Oh you yeah, you're doing I mean, all that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, but some of them honestly would be like, oh, I, I toured with a, a buddy named Joshua James, and mm-hmm. so we get a call from his camp and like you right. want to do them. So then you just like get it's on all with yeah, you yeah. just get on. And, Right. So there'd be a bunch of stuff like that. But independent and stuff, you were putting the band together. You were oh, yeah, organizing yeah. everything, still um, doing it. Yeah. 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 But uh, then I started playing Farm Aid ton, and I did how four did Farm get, How did you make that connection? Um, well, the, the manager I had who was with, like, the my first manager from L.A., uh-huh. he uh, it just wasn't working out because yeah. he didn't – that was, like, when I realized, shit, he's not – doesn't know what to do with all this stuff that's right. happening organically. Yeah. yeah. And, and double down and put, and put gasoline on that fire and – uh. So we parted, and I, I hooked up with um, uh, somebody somebody who knew somebody at Farm Aid when they're coming through Boston. Said, "Oh, you should do it. I wanted to do it." Uh, John Mellencamp's manager saw me there, <coughs> dug it, mm-hmm. and uh, so I signed up with him. He was great. I learned so much from him. We still have a great relationship. Mm-hmm. He was maybe sixty at the time, mm-hmm. and not you know could really see the bigger picture stuff, mm-hmm. but didn't know what to do to get he knew what to do when things were going 60 miles an hour didn't mm-hmm. know how to go from zero to 60 right when things are 60 to 100 he knows exactly what to do yeah um i needed to be you know in the 45 mile an hour right lane right and, and just building 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 especially the way the market was going everything's were going you know um i'm just very fortunate to have spent this time even though it's on a crumbling infrastructure mm-hmm. and the booze was gone from the party when i got to it right I just learned so much yeah. and I gained so much confidence uh, in what I know mm. and what I believe is most important about music too. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, you know, we're, we've been in a quantity game for music for decades mm. and in, in regards to the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's really a quality game even on the end of the business. The music's yeah. both quality and the business should be about the quality too. Mm. Because that's how I write songs and record them for the rest of my life. Mm. The quality of my fan is what matters, not the quantity. Mm. Um, but I got to see the demise of quantity. Sure. Yeah. And, get, and, get the, and get the lessons that it had left. Right. Built yeah. into me. Fundamentally, like how your relationship with CBS came to an end. Is that... So, yeah. So, CBS, uh, the head president, uh, he's like... Have you ever wanted, you know, he kind of challenged me to make this kind of record that I wanted to make. It was a little more democratized than my band that I had at the time, The Rivals, which was Dave Brophy, um, Matt Tahaney, and Matt Pinn. And we all just kind of huddled in and made this kind of big anthemic pop record uh, that wasn't like anything I'd done before. Um, And a lot of fun Mm -hmm. because it was just... It was like what you say about Miles Davis in the 80s. Like, I ha- we had to do that. It was like this thing. I think it annoyed some fans, of course, as always. If mm-hmm. you're doing something with good, in- like, you have an intention. Like, right. we had an intention. Someone's going to love it. And uh, 
I made it. I turned it into um, CBS in the present. Said, do you mind if I pass this off to some friends in the industry? Mm-hmm. And what he didn't tell me at the time was like CBS Records is closing down. And uh, I go, sure. And passes it off to his fir- the first guy. Freaked out about it. Guy at uh, Universal. Mm-hmm. Sure, we put, put on one show for Universal in New York. They love it. They buy the record from CBS. I get a, the biggest contract I've seen, you know, mm-hmm. five record deal. I've somehow went from selling my car to the biggest label in the world mm-hmm. without hiring a lawyer only unless I had a deal to sign. Right. You know, I didn't have a shop. I didn't. The showcases were by request, not mm-hmm. by like, we're going to do a show to try to get people out. Right. We, we, we didn't call anybody. Things just again things happened mm-hmm. and literally I'm walking up into the office of Universal and plastered on the wall it's a giant thing of Mick Jagger because he had something coming out and mm-hmm. then a giant thing of me and I'm like how that you know and after everything from 18 years old to I don't know what I was 30 something 30 30 32 3 mm-hmm. and I was like yep yeah, it was that easy yeah you know yeah I was doing what I loved the whole time now I get in there I have my yeah. first meeting it's like this is a lot different than the family vibe of the five people worked at CBS Records this is a lot different than anything else ever done it was a red flag after a red flag I got a lecture from the president of the label about not coming in here and whining about my Twitter account and my thought was our first meeting together is you worrying that I'm going to be an artist that comes in here and whines about you guys managing my social media means you have a bigger problem Mm. and this is not going to be fun for me Mm. uh two of your biggest again same issues have been dogging since the beginning to the people who loved you the most fired Mm -hmm. guy who signed you transferred across the country Mm -hmm. uh like errors were being made that were just like how does how does this happen like Dave release it's not on iTunes from an internal error mm. um, and uh, you know in fighting within the company about what the single should be like changing horses midstream about singles and stuff like that right. and um, then album comes out because nothing was planned by them we actually got an apology and I d- it's not like I'm I always hate like feeling like I'm bashing them, just like telling the true story, right. you know, sure. yeah. because it's, it's all people who have jobs and whatever. And the, and the industry isn't made for that part of the industry isn't for people like me. Mm. It's just not. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just remember thinking, I got to get I got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And this is going to set a lot of people. So my manager at the time is like, I'll help you get out. You know, you've got a T-Bone Burnett relationship. you got got uh, the people at CBS relationship. You know, the president of CBS knows who you are. No one wants to upset anybody. Mm-hmm. So if you're upset and you're telling us you're upset, mm-hmm. you know, I can get you out. But we're done working with you because we do not know what to do if you're not on the biggest label in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And, they, they, you know, it was things like, can you do, let's, 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 let's reboot you with a cover. All right. Well, here's a replacements cover I want to do. Here's a here's an Arcade Fire cover I'm reimagining. Here's right. like no. How about like Joe Jackson? Uh, is she really going out with him? Which 
at that time the, the rock and tours had a song very similar to like how you might reimagine that tune yeah the boom and uh i was like well, i love joe jackson but it's not within my being right now to authentically deliver yeah, a joe yeah. jackson cover i'm gonna be jumping through hoops for five years here right and get dropped mind you your manager's thinking if we can get them to admit to their screw up and green light you for a new record it was like a hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, I've never imagined that money. Yeah, sure. in my life or seen it. I was like, I don't think that's ever gonna happen here. Um, I feel depressed, horrible, and I said I'm out. And I had to end all my relationships. I had to mm-hmm. uh, start fresh. Yeah, you know, I had to, you know, I was scared. I was scared shitless in a way because I was like, don't tell me like, I just worked you know all this time and now nothing's gonna happen you know right so but i was i uh organically and authentically got to all these points and i organically and authentically got away from a point that Mm -hmm. i was not happy with yeah and um the pledge music guy's been kind of courting me for a while Mm -hmm. and um i just uh called up a meeting with them they looked at my numbers and they looked at like you know your mailing list and your socials and says here's what you can make if you do it mm-hmm. i told my fans the true story what happened the past few years and why mm-hmm. i've been in a dark hole and not touring and mm-hmm. told the truth and uh we raised you know twice as much which paid for everything up to the pressing of the album of oh, this is the national throat of national record. throat yeah um and recorded upstate new york and a little bit of q division here in boston mm-hmm and uh you know something miraculous happened it was just the most liberating thing not because i got out of the contract or anything and they soulfully let me go they did they did not have to let me go right um i uh you know these pledges are coming like people are like pre-ordering your record Mm -hmm. you know these aren't there's not donations you're giving like a product you know right it's just pre-selling the thing just like tesla's doing with their new car right so, I, uh, you're recording, usually recording in a vacuum, and it's like ethereal place of like, I think this is good, this is good, and what's here? but like, when you're, we were making National Throat, my uh, tour manager friend who's kind of watching the campaign while we were working, it's like, oh, we just got five pre orders this past hour. Here's some of the names. I would see a name I recognize, and five I don't, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you just, like, there's a connection to the outside world while you're making your art. Yeah. And it's extremely empowering. Mm. And then, after all these records, Goodbye Bullet all the way up to this one, mm-hmm. the album's done, and I'm not in debt. I don't mm. own a bank, like a label, any right. money. Right. I can now go and celebrate it freely, and anything that happens to it is growth. Mm. So there's, uh, there's not this chokehold on it of, holy shit, this better work, this better work, this right. better work. It already did work. It already did work. And you're not in debt. Right. And um, the people who came along on the ride, it belongs to them too, you mm-hmm. know. It, and then the process didn't occur to me until I had done that on a friend's record. And now I'm like addicted to it. I mean, right. I have yeah. I have records coming in the mail all the time. Yeah. And, and part of my mission now is to share with people the beauty and in, in the right that we have to do that. And if someone tries to take that right away from us, you really have to look because they're just trying to get in the middle Mm. and control your connection Mm. so it's back to the connection and trying to control it you know i pledged on 
that record. I put yeah. it on your record, and like the vinyl came, and uh, man, that is one of the best sounding records I've ever heard. Oh, and it's like, you. and it sounds like, you know, one thing I love about it is like, it sounds like you. Yeah. It sounds like Dave Brophy. Yeah. It sounds like Kamon yeah. and uh, Sonny Barbado. Yeah. It, you know, it's like from a tonal perspective and yeah. from the writing and the playing, it, you know, it's yeah. very authentic and does not compromise at all. And yeah. the songs are amazing. Thanks. And uh, man, um, so everybody definitely go buy that record or pledge on the next <laughs> one if you haven't already. Yeah, that's what's happening. The next, I mean, now it's we're just, I mean, so now it's like a moment of truth. Yeah. Like, What's the connection going to be? What's the truth in the narrative going to be? You know, I'm not leaving a label again, but I right. am now. Now's the time to prove a theory mm. that um, we are all a part of making art and art is the equity of humankind mm. and that we all participate in it. And if you're not willingly participating in it, uh, you might be becoming disconnected. Mm. Um, so the next album we're starting in January, I'm going to put a bunch of singles out. I'm going to do this. Like I told you, I got these two wacky tunes that I just wanted to kind of get out. Right. <laughs> yeah. That I'm putting on a limited edition seven inch. Yeah. No digital. Just yeah. 500 people will have that. Mm-hmm. And Where is, is that going to be through Pledge or through your own website? No, it's just going to be my own website. Yeah. Some, be, some will be like, you come to an event, you get it. If you mm-hmm. buy a ticket. Um, and, and then uh, two singles digitally only. And then in January, we start starting that process over again and again when you I know when I press that button in January and I said alright here's what's going on here's everything here's why here's how mm-hmm. here's where I'm starting like a three year process mm. yeah you know so yeah. it's a total commitment and it's total it's like alright I'm starting to ride mm. I'm starting to ride and uh, and I have all the songs and I like have my whole vision and the title and looking at places around you know like we're looking from Seattle to Iceland to record in Canada and different producers this time and mm-hmm. um it's exciting and it's but it's scary you know sure. I, i'm always there's not a show that i don't think no one's coming <laughs> there's not yeah. a you know yeah. and there's not a day that goes by where i can't if i get in a bad enough mood think i have not made anything good in life mm. you know that happens yeah. to all and those, these are real things yeah. I, for me it's a healthy thing and i'm scared of someone who doesn't right exercise because it just and then I, it propels me to go do something crazy like these two tunes are just they're bananas you know the two tunes that are going on the seven inch mm-hmm. you know and yeah. and I wanted to get them out of the way of the record so that it didn't influence my real vision of the, the album that I yeah, want to yeah. do and um and uh you know I'm gonna be until that record's done and the pledge is done I'm gonna be like no one's gonna do, do this right. no one's gonna come on board with this but right. here's the thing man when we, we are so concerned about our democracy, we are so concerned about each other, we're so concerned about things that might be going beyond our control in the world. Music is our one undeniable connector. And, you know, we're watching the Olympics right now. Uh, or maybe if you're airing this later, I'm like, we just watch baseball. Right. Yeah. <laughs> people, are, people are in Brazil. I was watching the Olympics this summer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and people are in Brazil, and there's the Seven Nation Army chant going on. Yeah. Da, 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 going yeah. on. In Brazil, you know? Right. That's a, that's a sports chant now. Right. And that's just Jack White hanging out in his house. And music's our connector. And w- look at what Vincent van Gogh's paintings have done for the world, from college posters and screensavers to, you're going to buy a ticket, 
and go to France one day to see the Louvre and go down and see what paintings are there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Look how much that drives us. Uh, look how we look at those paintings now, how it, it gets us to spend. And that spend is an airline ticket. It's a hotel. It's a dinner after the museum. It's all this stuff is being driven by your desire to connect to that art. Hmm. And why does that exist? Why does that piece of art exist? Sure, because Vincent van Gogh painted it, right? right. Sure, because he's a genius, we might argue. Mm -hmm. Sure, because uh, he cut his ear off in that narrative, opened the door for right. a guy who didn't have any success. Once he was dead, there's a whole story there. But really why it exists is because Theo van Gogh, his brother, paid for every drop of paint, every hospital bill, every rent check, everything he had in life because he could not put his shoes on in the morning. Mm -hmm. He was so ill. Yeah. Theo van Gogh is the reason we have all these paintings. The Pope is the reason we have the Sistine Chapel. So now we have the power through our interconnectivity to be the reason National Throat exists. Mm. You are the reason. Right. You, you pre-ordered it. Yeah. So it, I feel compelled every time I'm in an interview to say, like, yeah, we have to remind each other that we have the power and it's the greatest exercise in democracy when we could argue that the muscles being atrophied by our bullshit, mm -hmm. that I now can be the reason that all the records I'm getting in the mail exist. I'm part I'm part of it. I am part of it. We are all part of it. Mm -hmm. And 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 we're safer when we're working together. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Will Daly, man, really looking forward to seeing what comes next. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. Thanks, brother. This episode was produced and edited by me. The theme song was a collaboration between Matt Pendergast and myself. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in the podcast app and leave a review. Also, please consider making a donation to this podcast on our homepage at www.andrewhalljones.com. You'll see a link for A Musician's Life. If you have any questions or comments about this show, please email me at amusiciansLifePodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at MusicianLifePod. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening. And remember, time with music is time well spent.
So, uh, so Will, can you talk a little bit about your approach to playing a solo show, just you and acoustic guitar? Yeah, I mean, those always, um, I'm going to admit that those don't come by choice because uh, it's stressful, it's lonely. <laughs> it's, uh, and if you listen to my records, it, they're not guy with acoustic guitar. You know, right. it's full orchestration and um, all these players being featured to make the song what it is. Uh, and there's a lot more time when you're, when you're solo. You have to sing more of the time. There's a lot less space for you to uh, rest your voice in a rock and roll manner and, and, you know, get ready for the next tune. But the way the economy goes with music, I'm also very lucky that I did decide to just be Will Daly. And because I can now get an offer for a flyaway date. And it pays this, okay, well, then I make money and I'll go do it. And I, like I just did a, a bunch of dates with G Love and it was solo. He was solo, I opened up solo. And uh, it's um, it's daunting because I know, like, if you go by the, you're not getting my full vision. Uh, and depending on the kind of venue it is, I could be just up against the worst thing because if it's stand up bar or I'm solo before a band, I got. I got everything going against me. Um, on the other hand, there's nights where people are sitting down and they're dialed in and they're ready for you. And it's just, there's just like this gentle peace over the night and you're open to just express yourself as a person and kind of everything, every way you express yourself is still the song you're about to play or had just played. And um, so I just try to, I love those nights because um, you just, uh, it's, 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 it's just part of the, the experience of the song. Hopefully, if if it if you're if you're in tune, it's really about being in tune. It's about being a good the moon being in the right place. And I don't even know anything about the moon. I'm just using I'm using it right now as an example. But uh, it uh, and there's nights where I I cra- crash and burn. I mean, touring shows for me it's like this bipolar disorder. It's um at my level in my level where I can go from any anything from you know. <clears throat> playing to a thousand people, 500 people in France, a uh, room of 500 in Boston, uh, playing with Eddie Vedder with a thousand people to the next night. I'm, uh, I remember the first time I played with Vedder, I came, I had to fly back, play Martha's Vineyard. I went like, fly, jump, jump on a boat, get to the vineyard, 95 degrees heat, trio. I'm shot from hanging out all weekend and partying in Chicago. And then uh, it was just like a poorly executed festival. So there's, I don't know. What should have been 2,000 people was maybe it's 500, which feels like 100. You know what I mean? And everyone's just boiling. Uh, and I just like, it went horribly. Yeah. After like my greatest right. high, you know, and I couldn't, I, you know, I'm trying not to pass out on stage. and So there's that whole thing. And, but at the same time, it's very addicting. Obviously, yeah. obviously it's horrible. I wouldn't be doing, <laughs> doing that part anymore. But in, in, in then truthfully, business-wise, I can't do it without live. I can't make my monthly nut without live. And which is really hard to go do this next record because I have to stop and exercise the new songs privately, do demos, go through everything that I have. Go, you know, it's been, I purposefully after National Throat didn't play new songs live because I wanted to stay focused on the album and, and pushing it forward. So now I got just a pile of, things that I have to go through which means I should probably you know I'm trying right now not to say no to anything before the fall right. and we've succeeded in doing that but it's a little scary yeah. 
you know? Yeah. Um, but playing solo uh, under the right conditions can be a, a, a beautiful thing. I remember this tour I just did solo, though, it was a lot of bars mm-hmm. and party or more party vibe. But I quickly, after like night two or three, I was like, oh, these are the 12 songs I'm going to play. Right. This is what That's works. Good. And like those songs that I wanted to play or that even like a song like Off National Throat called Higher Education, which has like, you know, four million spins on Spotify and a lot of people come to hear. I was like, That's not gonna it's just not gonna happen. As the you know, the opener on this tour, uh, it's not gonna it's not gonna be worth anyone's thing and uh, I'll come play it for you by the bus afterwards <laughs> if like, you really need to hear it if you came out for it. So 